Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Okay, I have no time for that today, all right? Um, Jeffrey is someplace I haven't seen him before. He's sitting on a new couch, and a blank wall, the beautiful picture that was behind him last week, no longer sits there. And so, uh, bring us up to snuff. Uh, first of all, you know you have to give us an update on the move, because yes. uh, you got a whole people, a whole set of people that just listen to the show just so they can hear, you know, what's going on with Jeffrey's new move, new move, and is he still and, he, and is he still married? So, <laughs> so, uh, yes. so bring us up to snuff. What's going on with the move? What's the latest? Well, I'm in Las Vegas right now, and last night, Lori and I drove a 17-foot um, rental truck full of our last stuff up here and uh, offloaded it with the help of the boys, so we're pretty much done. i got to go back. As soon as we finish this podcast, we're driving back. Uh, actually, Lori drove the truck, and I drove the, our, the car behind it, and uh, so we're going to drive back, and uh, we're pretty much done. We just got to clear out uh, some stuff um, so that the cleaners can come in and clean the place right now. But um, we're out of there by the uh, officially by the uh, by next Wednesday. So so you go back just to clean and, and, and everything's moved? Yeah. That's the last and thing. Plus, I got to go to work. I got to go back. I got to go to work there at Camp Pendleton got tomorrow. It. So. Got it. So where are you going to live? Now you're out of that place. You're all in there. Where do you live when you're in Southern California? Is that classified? Well, Remember when we had you over for Thanksgiving? That wasn't really our house. Oh, that was the uh, that was the the boys' uh, apartment. And because they're minimalists, which is a nice way of saying they don't have anything, <laughs> that place is big. It's a little bit bigger, anyways, you know, than the place we're in. So I'm going to just take one of the rooms, uh, and every other week I'll fly home for the week. I'll fly here for the weekend, which costs about eighteen cents, you know, to fly from um, from Orange County to. Uh, to uh, Las Vegas actually costs about uh, you know about thirty bucks or whatever. It depends when you go. So uh, you're kidding. You know, that's going to be our pattern. It's that, it's, that it's that cheap. It is if you pick the right day. Like if you go on Wednesday or something like that, you you can get in there less than forty bucks. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that. The um, Will probably does. I mean, being a gambler and all, he would know those Vegas air airfares and shit like that. Yeah, where is Will today? I don't. He must not be joining us. Um, the um, I just yeah, literally landed thirty minutes ago. Wow. Yeah, Colleen standing by in the truck, and uh, and I and uh, so here I am. Uh, fast. We got I when we left Honolulu yesterday. Daniel K and Noe Airport. Daniel and Noe. Right, former senator, former senator, and member of the four forty second. I mean, uh, yep. those guys. I mean, what, service cross or medal of honor? Was he yeah. was he a single amputee? Wasn't he? Yeah, he lost. He lost the use of an arm. I don't lost think he was. Yeah, he lost the use of his arm. Dole lost the use of his arm. I thought. Oh, anyway. I might have him and Dole confused. You know, no, but I'll tell you what. Talk about a little bit of a. Um, heroic chapter in American history, right? In spite of the way they were treated, man, they went around Europe and kicking everybody's ass. Um, yeah. uh, might be a little, might be a little, uh, 
lesson in, in uh, what a disciplined culture can achieve, um, yeah. right, uh, which is where they came. But uh, I was telling Timmy, they, went to, they shut the door on the airplane. Everything's fine. And they bend something. I didn't know that was possible. Now, I think we all understand, even those idiots among us, that uh, when something gets bent, you don't just shut the door and say, fuck it, it's good, because that shit would heat up, right? Up there in not like outer space, but enough space underneath you where, and there's no parachutes on the plane. So uh, that's not going to end well. So four hours later, we uh, finally get in the air, which means there are no connecting flights by the time you get here to Conus. And so spent the night in San Jose. So I walk out of the airport in San Jose. I look around. I'm like, I'm, I don't have a hotel room. I, I'm just going to look for the first hotel shuttle. 30 seconds go by. I don't see one. Right? So that's all the time I have allotted to it. I walk over to a cab. I meet an Ethiopian cab driver. And I said, can you take me to the best hotel that's less than a mile away? He says, I could do that. And I, get in the, I get it, and he takes me to an awesome hotel. The lady there was ex, was exceedingly pleasant and nice to me. Oh, look at that. Um, and uh, so I'm going to write a letter to the corporation saying that they should give her a raise and promote her immediately because she's, uh, she's a wonderful person. So um spent the night, got up at 3.30, went over to the airport, and, you know, here I am. So, uh, but I did get a chance to go to the Punch Bowl. Um, I got a chance to, uh, I never, I hadn't done hardly any tourism in Pearl Harbor, but uh, my great uncle name is uh, killed and, and lost at sea during the Second World War. So I got a chance to go see the Punch Bowl that I'd never seen and uh, see his name there. So I uh, got a chance to do that. And then, uh, and then I got a chance to get out to Fort Island and go see the battleship Missouri. And, uh, you know, if you ever saw a battleship at sea back in the day when we still had them, they were menacing figures. They, they, they rode low in the water when they were fully outfitted. And uh, so you see the Missouri tied up, and it's such a place of history, right? The Japanese surrender, you know, and all of that. And let alone to be tied up more, you know, more at Pearl Harbor. Um, and, um, in fact, I asked Dave Furness about about being on the Mew with you, Jeff, when you guys went into Pearl Harbor. And he said he said he still gets goosebumps thinking about rendering honors uh, to the Arizona and and the Missouri. As, as you, Well, the Missouri wasn't there at the time, I don't think, but at the, the, certainly the Arizona, uh, he still gets goosebumps. But, you know, you get a chance to see that. And uh, I don't know, it's like going to kind of, for me, you know, when you're at Gettysburg, you feel the same um I don't know, ghosts of history and, and, uh, and they had, uh, when Will was out here, uh, he and I watched a documentary by accident about the salvage operations at Pearl Harbor. And there's pictures on the, on the pier of some, of some of those operations. And so, uh, so got a chance to do that. And, uh, and then I did post-traumatic winning. Interestingly enough, two doctors came up to me afterwards. I wanted to have an in-depth conversation about we are very frustrated because this thing now gets thrown at us. And this is the intermediate step that leaders need to know. And I said, okay, boys, we need to do business. So um, hopefully something good will come out of that. Um, you say doctors. You mean psychiatrists? No, medical doctors. Okay, well, that's different. Yeah. And, uh, well, one was a medical doctor, one was a psychiatrist. And they said, no, this is your spot on and all this stuff that you said. 
Never seen anything like it. So I'm I'm hopeful. Uh, did you all see that study that's come out at Brown University that we've had 7,200 killed in action? And since 9-11, we've had 30,000-plus suicide? Holy cow. Yeah. You, you know, when they first raised the suicide issue in the 90s, they were always exempting the military because they said, well, the military screened. So, of course, they are on an age basis much less than the, than the, uh, the population at large. But there was a time when in the military, uh, we didn't have a suicide problem. Flat out didn't have one. Right. And, and, and our numbers were much lower than the comparative general population. Yeah, that is no yeah. longer the case. Act, was that was that suicide active duty or, or uh, veteran? Both active duty and ve- and and veteran. Yeah, veteran, veteran. It's hard to count in because you pull pull your laptop or whatever closer to you. Sorry, that's all right. Uh, the the veteran thing I think skews the whole thing a bit. Um, if it's post nine eleven veterans, that's very interesting to me. If it's active duty, it's interesting. If it's the veteran population as a whole, that's that's a little. I'm not sure how useful well, that number is. Just a little personal interjection here. Um, my oldest stepson Glenn was in Alpha One Five in OIF One. They had two KIAs: the Company Gunny, Gunny Boar, and uh, Platoon Commander Lieutenant Childers. Since then, that bunch has had double-digit suicides. Alpha one five, so I think that is a real it is a real thing. And that you is, know, yeah, that's one of the, the numbers. Up, well, is a huge that's one thing. of the points that they make that that is that is now the norm in most units that they have multiples of of um, of what their killed in action were in in right. suicide. And, and another data point, another data point in 1988, when my company had a suicide of a sergeant, the only issue was getting a rifle back from the Oceanside police. He did it with his service rifle. And I've explained this before, but it was so unknown that 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 everybody just treated it as like, wow, this is a, a huge anomaly. It was literally unknown. Right. Let me just to answer, Will, this, this, I'm reading from the paper now, and I'll send you all the, the, this link. Um, and this is the actual paper, not the article about it. Uh, this paper estimates that 30,177 active duty personnel and veterans of the post 9-11 wars have died by suicide, significantly more than the 7,057 service members killed in post 9-11 war operations. So, um, yeah, th- to your question, Will. Um, so again, I, I started, I started reading it yesterday and I, I'm, I'm about a third of the way uh, through yeah. it. And, uh, and Mag, this also probably goes to your point that, that the suicide issue slash problem is not a function of combat PTS. It's a function no. of life, trauma, et cetera, yeah. spanning, uh, all those people's lives. Yeah. And, and combat PTS may be a percent, but I think it's a hell of a lot smaller than people think of when they first get into the issue. Yeah, yeah I don't. I think that's right. I think it's mo- there's something really else. Agree. Disappointed, you know, they're disappointed somehow. And uh, well, you, you know, it's. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a statistic that I, I started thinking about not too long ago, and that is, I was reading again footnotes about mental health and things like that. 
um, enlisted force, 82% of the active component. They're 92% of the suicide. Why? And I would, and, and we know that, look, um, um, so the reason they don't go to college when they're fully capable intellectually is why? Maybe their homes weren't stable enough. Maybe academics weren't emphasized. Maybe they were looking to get out of town. So I think you could probably footnote all of that uh, just based on my life experience. You know, a lot of people looking for a way out of, of where they were living, um, you know, and they joined the military out of high school. I mean, hell, they jo- they're part of the, you know, delayed entry program. You guys recruited them. And uh, so I believe there's more trauma um adolescent, right, adverse childhood experiences on the enlisted side of the Marine Corps than in the officer. I don't think education has anything to do with not, you know, a college degree has anything to do with not killing yourself. I believe that that in those homes that are enlisted, you know, Marines grew up and and, and the entire force is greater instability, adverse childhood experiences, and it's reflected in suicide. Think about this. 49% of suicide on active duty is E134. But listen, but forty three percent, which together make the ninety two percent, is E five through E nine. Now that that is a much smaller grouping, right? E one through E four would be, you know, how what percentage of, you know, the entire active duty force? I don't know, but you know, upwards fifty percent more. Yeah, 70. yeah. W- what is E five through E nine? Right now, you're. I mean. I mean, a much smaller percentage, but they're forty-three percent of the suicide. So, um, so again, what what I see, you know, just uh, you know, a lot of a, a good percentage of people that join looking for a way out of a, of a tough situation. They find it in the military. We've always been a path for that, and those that path got wider uh, when we went to the all volunteer force, right? Uh, we, we stopped getting a cross section of the country, and now we get a very specific part of the country that is looking to get out of town. And I think that's, that's reflected in those numbers. It's, it's strange because the easiest thing in the world for a reasonably intelligent person to do is complete a college degree after completing an enlistment. I mean, that was, that's always been a feature, not a bug. Right. So, So you look at these first term enlistees, they should be recognizing that they've got potentials they didn't, they didn't have. And the discipline is going to bring out uh, their, their their better nature and make them more successful. That certainly was my. Well, you know, Tim, and, and, and I think all that I think all that's true. Now, I don't yeah. want to. I don't want well, to. What happened? Yeah. I don't want to cut to the end of the program, but I'm reading um, "The Body Keeps the Score," written by a dude from Holland who comes to the United States to study medicine. Right, winds up in Massachusetts working in the Harvard school of medicine system and when the whole pharmacology explosion happens in the country right and then we have mris and then we begin to study the brain and then everybody believes that these drugs are the secret and then you know and he says look you know we've ju- we've done just as much damage by those with those things as we have help people with it. We've oversubscribed to that. So he's a really interesting guy. And I'm only, you know, I'm I'm not too far into the book, but, you know, some of the things he's already said are the things that you and I have lived. And he affirms 
but from the perspective of doctor. And and so to me, what one of the things he said, and I was listening to it this morning, is he said you can medicate it, right, which essentially numbs it, right. You can talk about it, right, but you can't make it go away. It never goes away. And so I think, and, and I think you guys have seen the presentation and heard me talk about it, that's the thing that we're not telling them. And so then they go and life does get difficult. And they're all those things. And you're right, Tim. I mean, I mean, look, they've been around the world. They're tough. They're disciplined. And, I mean, come on. If, you, if you're that, college, I mean, enlisted guys have some of the best times they've ever had in college, right? Because they, they know the deal. But they still can't shake if they went through a lot of real difficult stuff in childhood. And again, I'm talking about being molested. I'm talking about being physically beaten. I mean, that you never shake that. And unless somebody teaches you how to transcend that, it's it's gonna it's gonna stay stay with you. Mac, what was the what was the veteran number again? The, the veteran number was thirty thousand one hundred seventy seven. Thirty thousand. Post nine eleven veterans. Yes, I'm just wondering how many post nine eleven veterans there are. There's a couple million. Yeah, three million. Are you talking? Uh, you know, we're doing math in public. If you're, if there's three million veterans, and that's about one percent. That's it's. I was going to say you, you want to be careful about focusing on, you know, that one percent, but one percent is. I mean, that's a real number there. If there's 10 million veterans, then it's one third of 1%. And yeah, you want to you wanna analyze it and attempt to figure it out because it, it's not a completely solvable problem, but it's a problem that can get a hell of a lot smaller. If it's one third of 1%, it's, it's less alarming to me, even though it's a tragedy in each case. If it's 1%, it's more. You know what I mean, and so. Uh, and, but again, you know, trying to d- diagnose the entire force based on a one percent to a one third of one percent is tough. Right, so, but I, but so to me, the question is: okay, so so what's the trend line throughout it all? Right, well, are we getting better? Or are we are we getting worse? Yeah, and, good, and when yeah. and when you look at the trend line, it's up every year. Um, in nineteen ninety nine, uh, the post. Cold War, Soviet Union drawdown ends, and we get to about 1.4 million. We had 150 suicides uh, that year. We will triple that number in 21 years in the next 24 months. Triple it. We'll be, we'll be at approximately 450 annually, and it just keeps going up. And so to me, what's maddening about watching all this now, and especially – I, I didn't mean to have this discussion this morning, but it's, especially is, is look more drugs and more therapists is not the yeah. answer. We've been doing that yeah. fucking shit forever. That's not the answer. Yeah. That's the exact lesson that you can put. The more, the more uh, experts that get involved with this thing, the more people commit suicide. Right. And when, it, and when you talked about the all volunteer force, First 25 years of the all-volunteer force, we didn't have a suicide problem. We had a murder-each-other problem in the late 70s, you know, mid-70s up to the you know, early 80s. If someone got killed, uh, it's by, usually he was murdered by another Marine you know, if, uh, for the Marine Corps. But, uh, yeah, we, that, this, but society as a whole 
and for the reasons you just laid out, Max, I think, is uh, they're, they're committing suicide in a lot bigger numbers. There's more therapists. There's more uh, doctors. There's more, you know, there's more psychopath, psychotropic uh, drugs that they give people. I'll tell you, when I was in the hospital, they're always pushing drugs. And the first thing they do at the VA, they'll push it. How do you feel? You want to, and they want they want you to be taking that shit. And uh, you know, it's a uh, it's a problem that I think in their zeal to fix it. The thing is, in the in saying we're going to fix this problem, you're also making a shit ton of money. You know, the pharmaceutical companies and so forth. You know, Jeff, the problem and, and, never gets solved. They don't want to solve the problem. Well, it's interesting you say that because. Um... One of the things this guy says is if you're a noted journal and you begin to begin to publish articles that are critical, critical about pharmacology's approach to this, right, you're going to get a shot across your brow. You know, advertisers yes. are going to pull back all the rest of this because, you know, you're not you're not dancing to the tune. That's not the narrative that we want. Right. And, right. so, right. and so and so you the, don't the see as much news is yeah, all about that the Marley guy talks you, about that. You don't see um you don't see as much of that those articles published for obvious reasons. And so I mean I constructed um a slide that 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 I'll show you here um if I can figure out how to save it. And it's 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 disgusting. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's absolutely positively disgusting, and it is that it is that twenty-one year uh, trend line, and but you 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 will never see this anywhere. You will never ever see this anywhere, and uh, when you see it, you look at it and you go, "Holy shit, man! Where did you get that?" And my somebody said that to me. Where did you get that? I said I had to make the fucking thing. Because it doesn't exist. Because nobody, right? Nobody, sure as hell, is gonna is gonna show their ass and and put this out there, you know. And so I had to go through. Um, I and here's the. I'll put it up in our text thing. If you guys grab your phones and and look at that. Um, it, and so people look at it and they're like, "Good God." I'm like, yeah, you don't realize the problem's as bad as it is till you see it graphic, you know, graph in graph like that. That's that approach. Medicate them and let them come talk about it. At some point, we've got to conclude that that that. Look at that. I mean, think about a guy who lies about Ritalin use to get in the Marine Corps. Right? Uh, he's been on Ritalin since he was nine years old because his parents were told. If the kid's rambunctious, he needs to be on drugs. He's got a chemical, right, Jeff? He's got a chemical imbalance. We're going to balance his chemicals and turn him into a fucking zombie. And then he gets in the service, and he has issues. Maybe he's wounded. Maybe he's just, you know, he he gets counseling. And with the counseling comes more drugs. So this guy's basically on some kind of mind-altering drug from the time he's nine years old until, you know, he's a bona fide certified fuck up and nothing to do with him. And, and it's interesting because one of the things I say, which I've said, I, I don't want to tell you that I'm, I, and I don't need to tell you fucking guys cause you guys know this, yeah. but I'm really fucking smart. Okay. And this book I'm listening to, 
<laughs> this this book, if you could, I, I should have recorded the look on their that faces. <laughs> I should have looked. I almost wiped my I know. <laughs> I know. That, you know what? That's what I was hoping. And then I would start recording this. But if you could have seen the look on their face when I set that up. Now, I don't need to tell you all you guys this, but I'm really fucking smart. And so, <laughs> so what... What this guy says is, is one of the things I say, medications to be useful, right, are bridges to behavior. For instance, if somebody's really struggling, right, with, you know, with, with PTSD, the, inab- the inability to sleep, to control anxiety, I mean, those are real, real functional problems. So, you know, you, you would prescribe the medication, help them sleep, and then develop the coping behavior underneath that and then wean them off the drug that's but what we did was we put people on these mind-changing drugs as jeff was just talking about when they're little forever and then they never developed the behavior the coping behavior underneath it and so we just and again the only thing you're doing is numbing them that's all you're doing yeah and you talk about the psychotropics my time period is 2011 and 12 and what we discovered is, is the continuity of care was continuously broken because we needed doctors to go forward. And I, I never forget when we went out to uh, Camp Pendleton, probably 2012 time period, and met with Wounded Warrior Battalion guys out there, them and their spouses, significant others, whatever. And the one thing they, they asked the assistant commandant is to put pressure on Navy medicine to leave their doctors. So these guys would get into a therapy regimen, physical, mental health, and then the doctor would change. Um, And then a new doctor would come in. And so their ability to track this, they would get frustrated. They weren't taking the drugs properly. They weren't integrated so that one person had a clear view. So you just compound it at that end. And I sense... Uh, that that happens with a lot of people uh, out there. If someone has got a mental health issue, they need someone on the outside who is really examining the case holistically. And I just doubt that that happens in most cases. And if you're on your own, uh, it's really challenging. It's one of the things the Semper Fi Fund is, is really pushing towards now is develop these case managers so that someone yeah, you need somebody. Well, if you hear the stories of that, if you hear the stories, right? You need continuity. These, yeah, these spouses, they des- they flew around the country and a lot of times financed by Semperfy, right, to create a, a, a course of treatment for their husband because there was no case manager and there was so, – and so because they said, well, what do we do now? Well, you've got to figure out, you know, where, you know, you, you want him to go. And it was like – and I, you know, I mean, the stories you hear about that are stunning, absolutely you know, stunning. And you, you guys know about, you know, my oldest stepson issues with uh, epilepsy. The good news is right now he's in a place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that's like he's going to finish that, and then he's going to be sent to the uh, Epilepsy Center of Excellence in uh, in uh, Baltimore. But it was it was because of like a couple. It was basically him taking the bull by the horns. And a couple of heroic people within the VA, but most of the VA, all they want to do is shove the drugs, and they, 
constantly are dealing with the destruction of continuity. And what Will just said about this, if the Semper Five, I, I was looking through the VA. Is there some guy that's like in charge of him, like in charge of, okay, he's getting this drug uh, and it's making him have this symptom to deal with this problem. But this symptom, because it's a bad symptom, now he's got another drug that's being prescribed to deal with that symptom, which causes other symptoms. It's horrific. So if they had one guy, and the guy shouldn't be Jeff Kenny, you know, it should be somebody who works there, who uh, who's in, who's in, who sees it holistically, and knows that, and and uh, yeah, that's you know that, that kind of hit a nerve when Will said that because that's exactly the experience we were having. But but going back to the experience that I had in '88, the issue was we had no idea this kid had sustained such long term sexual trauma as a child no friggin clue had we known what he was struggling with we sure as hell wouldn't allow him to come back from a va uh, a doctor's appointment check his rifle out and catch a ride to the field with the with the, with the mail so so that was the issue in the 80s and in the 80s the one thing i think we had to our advantage is a little bit more of habitual familiarity uh, familiarity god i can't even talk uh, at least a grunts at the platoon level with our with our Marines, because there wasn't there wasn't a formation a day. There were two formations a day, sometimes three. I mean, we we habitually were with them at all times. Yeah, we lived we lived in the we no lived in the collect we lived in the collective. We PT'd together. Right. We didn't have these right. nice gyms. Yeah. We field day together. You know, I mean, we lived together. Shit, we had and, open squad days else. when I was a second lieutenant. That was you nice. Validated man. admin. Admin was at the battalion level. That's right. And I just remember looking at record books every couple of months at the most. I mean, our admin center, by led by a guy, CW2 Lyle Schmitz, used to take the admin center to the field. And he'd set up the tent, <laughs> and they'd do security at night. Yeah. They'd do record books in the day. And when he'd say, hey, Will, you're gonna, where are you going to be? We're going to be here. Okay, we're going to set up. And you'd cycle through and look at record books. And, and it's bizarre the things that you could learn just by looking at record books all the yeah. time. I'll tell you what, as a battalion commander, I'd be shocked if my platoon commanders ever saw the yeah. SR. And let me tell you, Will, huh. up until like 78, that stuff was at the company level. So everybody, you know, it was so intimate, you know. And then when, right now, those guys are like a uh, – a lobbying group in the Marine Corps and probably yeah. the service. It's a the, lot the admin. Right now, it's a lot more efficient. It's efficient, but not effective. We've lost a lot of effectiveness. Yes. There's a cost to that. You know, it's a second or third order effect that we never anticipated to save, you know, 11, 1200 billets of admin personnel at the battalion level. Right. One of those things. Well, and the impact that, you know, that, that I see is this, you know, they join wanting to meet, you know, Gunny, Ronnie Lee Step. That's, you join to meet that guy, right? right? And that's, and so, I mean, you you got these kids that come from difficult circumstances, but now you live in the collective. You have these guys who you really respect. And, and yeah, and there's crazy people in there and, and, and whatnot, which is kind of what makes it exciting. But, um but you lived in the collective. I mean, when we field day, staff NCOs would be there with a cup of coffee and a green, you know, notebook, 
And what were they doing? They were hanging out. They were collecting on people. And they knew them. You were part of this thing. And, and, and now it's not that way anymore. It's one of the things I talk about. You know, that cell phone helps them isolate themselves. And, and, and we help them because we don't have formation. Because why are we having formation? Just to pass information. Well, what happens if there's another purpose? And now we don't, we don't PT together anymore because we have all these beautiful gyms. So it's like, hey, uh, we're going to do rainbow PT, go down the gym and blah, 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 blah. Well, right? I mean, just think of, I mean, you think of the, how much different the experience is, how much more of an individual experience it is as opposed to the way we collectively lived. And, and that's yeah. part, and that's part of the problem, especially for these kids that come in with a lot of adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. You, you know, when I cohesion, cohesion was unavoidable. Now right. a commander has to select venues to achieve the same thing. Right. He's got to go out of his way to he's create, get a, to create it. He's got to get neurosurgeons and shit like that, you know, to, to have uh, body sparring and everything. He's got to, he's got to really uh, work at it to do with stuff that we had no choice but to do. Right. I, I uh, you know, when I retired, I said, you got to answer three questions. Why'd you join? Why'd you stay? And why'd you leave? And the why'd you stay question is a really good one. And, and I figured out why'd you stay? Because you want to be like those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, and I specifically, Jeff knows these guys. I said, I wanted to be like Dave Peterson and Ed Messina yeah. and Staff Sergeant Smith and Mike Ratliff. I wanted to be like those guys because you yeah. were on top of each other all the time and you had people that you looked up to and respected and you didn't want to let down. Yeah. And if, if, you know, as a battalion commander, I, I, I talked to officers a lot. I said, we got to give these guys the Marine Corps. They thought they joined. Mm-hmm. And if we're losing those things because we want to be more efficient, um, then you've lost the essence of the organization. And that's, yeah. Uh, I will. I would tell you that's where that, we're at. That's where we're at. And that's, I mean, and again, think about the, the, the world we laugh at, the world we talk and, and have such great memories of is what Ronnie Lee step kicking Corporal Kenny in the balls. Right. And <laughs> ask him if we can call this thing a draw and stop this ass whooping that he said he would give him. Right. I mean, it's those guys that dominated the Marine Corps. My first platoon sergeant. Um, didn't have a high school degree and, and, you know, was mostly illiterate. I had to, I wrote stuff for him, right? Bruce B. Smith from Washington, D.C. is about five foot eight and about 240 pounds and not a bit of fat on him, right? And when he said, Hey, here's what we're doing, <laughs> there was, no, there was not a whole lot of negotiation and nobody blew his ass off. But I mean, they were those guys, right? And so when we were lieutenants, our staff sergeants came in. About what, 1972, 73, you know, they were staff NCOs in the, in, in the early and in, in mid-80s. Um, they grew up in a tough Marine Corps. They were tough guys. But the things they did, the way they did it, there was this mystique about that toughness, right? And you, yeah. it's, what you, it's why you joined. I used to love to watch company formation. Right. I, I learned terms like dick skinners. Right. And cock holster. Right. For, you know, was your mouth. Right. All the all this like you'd hear this shit and you'd look at like, what does that mean? And like then they decode it for you. And it sounded yeah, like you have to go to prison. You get that. <laughs> and so you would you're out there and 
it's like Def Jam Comedy Hour, the, the 10 minutes before formation when they're just out there, everybody's busting balls. And I remember it's thinking, right? Like you had Rich Stebbins, right? That's yeah. Rich, Rich Stebbins, my platoon sergeant. We sergeants together. And Will was talking about Dave Peterson. He was my assistant team leader in recon. And uh, so we just, you know, we knew each other. You know, I mean, it's, it's like uh, if you didn't know somebody, you knew somebody who knew him, you know? And, uh, but these guys, I mean, they, and I cannot imagine how does the Marine Corps work? And when you look at the, when you look at the 15th Mew incident, do you get the sense that these staff and COs are the dominant players, right? I mean, because if, if they were, when, when that section of AVs goes out there without the platoon sergeant or the platoon commander, the platoon sergeant interjects himself and says, Hey, sir, one of us got to go. Oh, okay. Uh, I'll go then, right? I mean, and and so to me, it has an impact not only on the individuals, but you know this. I think lack of operation, uh, lack of operational discipline we see, and and the and and it and part of the reason that we got there was because of the Marines United things, and then and then we started entertaining the officer corps started entertaining allegations and wouldn't stand behind their staff NCOs. And what did the staff NCOs say? Hey, fuck it then. You won't stand yeah. behind me, then I won't be alligated against. I'll be here at six. I'll leave when I'm supposed to, and I'm going to do my job. And that space is, I think, what Will is talking about. In they're coming in, but that this is not the experience that they thought they would have, and I think it's a bit disappointing. It's yeah. it's hugely disappointing, but there is a the only way to counter it, I think, is with a convincing story. And this is what's interesting: is post traumatic winning is the story that models exactly these kinds of things that we need to get back to because right now we're allowing the victims to define what the transgression is, which is how general Neary got his uh, career ruined. If, 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 if him saying that word was so offensive, why were they blasting that word all over the quadrangle with their stupid boom box? You see, but they decided that, Oh, it's offensive because it came from general Neary and they kneecapped him and that was allowed to happen. So, I we know what the solution is. The solution is to go back to where we came from. But but Jesus, how do you do that given the current environment? Because it sure doesn't seem like a harsh harsh discipline and and return to close order drill is anything remotely happening in the future around here. Well, let me tell you. And again, the solution, and I can tell you because it's what I see. You know, the Second Marine Division. I go and do this thing. And suicide attempts go down 47%. I do it for the 2nd Marine Air Wing. They go down 62%. And what's the answer? The answer is us. The answer is you staff and COs particularly. You're the parents. You've got to be the parents. And once they start doing that, and once we, and that's the experience Will's talking about. It's us, therefore us, right? And, you know, and, and knock on wood, I mean. And General Furness's uh, campaign about uh, getting returning discipline to the NCO ranks and whatnot, I would assume kind of aided the message, no doubt. That was a fer- it was fertile ground with which to plant your uh, the, be- the 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 seed of of uh, what's developed into post traumatic winning for sure. Yeah. But but there's there's a we know what they. But you what, know what, what all post traumatic winning is? It's me listening and interviewing guys like you, who told me true things. Okay, <laughs> that's it's, it's me getting clubbed over the head for two years with the same fucking story, and then saying, "Oh, hey, wait a minute." Maybe I should write some of this shit down, right? And under the guise of 
the sun shines on a dog's ass every once in a while. I mean, figuring that out. And, and consider my experience when at that, during that helicopter crash. My gunny pulls me deeper into the tribe. Now, when Jeff says, I'm struggling, we say, oh, you, we outsource with you. We send you away from the tribe, right? And you can see how we fuck people up because there's nothing wrong with them. They're just getting their ass kicked by life. And they need role models to emulate and people that pull them deeper into the tribe and we send them away. And, and that, that, that red graph that I sent all of you is indicative yeah. of that's the that's the result that you get when you do that. When are we going to yeah. stop it? Do you remember when we were in IOC in 92? It was uh, near the end of your time, Mac, but uh, General Allen was talking about, then Major Allen, talking about exactly this. He was talking more in terms of combat fatigue, combat stress, places like Iwo Jima. And he said, because he was a forward-thinking enough guy that he thought about stuff like that. And he said that uh, what they would do is pull guys off the line. I mean, Iwo Jima, it doesn't matter where you are. You're in a dangerous place. They pull him out for a very short period of time and then bring the guy back. And uh, and he needed, you know, and, and there was, uh, in other words, all you need is a break, you know, for that highly intense stuff. Then you're back in, but the important part was you were back with your buddies. You know, you weren't. And where did the where did they go during the break, Jeff? Because you, they you could chronicle this in Vietnam. They went back to the company gunny and they That's moved shit it. around. Yeah. Right? They never yeah. left the context of that family that they grew up in. And then the you know, I mean, you I, and you know, you had gunnies look at them and say, "Hey, look, man, we all go through it. Uh, you're gonna hang out with me for a couple of days, and then you gotta you're gonna hop back in there and fight." Uh, and you could hear them. I right, gunny, I'm just. And then you could hear this, I mean, the compassionate side of the Marine Corps that we don't really talk about. Hey, look, I, I've gone through it. We're all scared shitless, man. You're scared shitless, Gunny? Fuck yeah, man. I'm, you want to see the number of trousers I've thrown away because I shit my pants? What? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, then, and then you hear that, and that's what we don't hear. But that's what, I mean, he used to give that class, what, human factors in common? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. human factors. But, but then I remember both of you guys working in that weekend, that, that weekend um, live fire event, right? That was the attack, the, the attack that never ends. Yeah. And I remember that, that Alan and you guys, you, you sculpted. So they got hit with D. Giovanni and the stinking NBC attack. And so they're at the end of a week and they are at their wits end. And then we, as I recall, you tr- we trucked them over to the range and we told everybody, 100% in the bag, go to sleep. We'll pull your security in order to reinforce that in the morning when we started doing the live fire, that you had to be fresh. And they got up and they got coffee and we slowly walked them through what was going to happen while stressing to them about the sleep. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, Father Kennedy and fucking newspapers and shit. Exactly. You know? exactly. I used to bring my kids to that to get out of going to mass. Because probably can't do it in twenty minutes. So uh, I had my, my kids out at the BC Village for uh, TBS. Yeah, yeah. They used to go out and do that too. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, um, I thought the testimony. The, I, I hope you had a chance to listen to it, but I thought it was. I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. In, in particular, um, uh, the, the the third segment uh was I thought was got very pointed very interesting that had Eric Smith and I and I wish I could remember the other admiral's name and the assistant acting assistant secretary of the navy uh, but I let's go around uh let's uh 
Jeff, you have to go first because this is an opinion segment. Um, what is the um, the nightingale is one of the most favorite things that have come out of uh, of this segment, by the way. But uh, your thoughts on on the testimony that you heard? Well, I mean, you know, I don't. I, I'm torn because I Uh-oh. know these guys now. You know, like when we were young, I didn't know the generals were up there testifying, but now I know Eric Smith and I know. You know, uh, General Berger personally, and uh, sometimes I feel like, man, the guy's in a situation that, uh, you know, he's just trying to not do harm. You know, what I mean? he's, but uh, they're really not. It's they're just not too effective. You know, it's, uh, and I feel like, uh, you know, we're getting cut, especially the Navy. I have to tell you, the thing that really jumped out at me was the Navy testimony. Testimony. More than the you know the Marine Corps, you know, but uh, we're being shorted, you know, and these guys are trying to deal with it. And I, you know, I, I mean, I could shit all over them, you know. We do that regularly, you know, but uh, you know, that, that, that was what kind of jumped out at me about the thing, you know. All right, Will, what jumped out at you? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say I, I did not. Uh, go to the third segment because I listened to the first two and I thought there was just a lot of gobbledygook in there. Um, I'm looking for my notes right now. And it was, there was a lot of typical testimony stuff there. Uh, We're going to be ready today and we're going to improve tomorrow. I I would say if there was a trend and I didn't, I didn't track Republicans versus Democrats. Um, At one point, I know that, uh, Bolton sort of chastised the Republican ranking member who was attempting uh, to ensure that the 53K program was fully funded. And uh, General Berger said he didn't need it. And and Moulton directed the, the member to look at that. Um, but, but in the end, it, it's a bad format. You know, they got five minutes. Um, which means they get to make a speech and ask one simple question, and then that's it. And uh, the people that are testifying, uh, if they can mouth enough platitudes, it all just sort of goes away. Um, If there was a trend, it's seemingly bipartisan on a committee that the budget's not enough. The, the, The problem is they challenged the service chiefs to you know, go tell people they need to increase the budget. Um, the, the Democratic members should go to the administration if they really believe that yeah. and put the marker down on the line. They're the only ones with any power in this. The service chiefs don't have the power. They can go up there and say we need more budget. And, you know, we won't get into budget speak inside the Pentagon. But by the time that gets through all the filter, that means that everyone – is just fighting for their own piece of it. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, the Republicans have no power, particularly in the House. And so the Democrats can mark up a top-line increase and challenge the administration on that. But the odds of that, uh, zero. So uh, I, I, I think that a lot of this stuff just turns into talking points to go back to the district, and not even really the entire district, but 
the interest groups within the district. If you're a Democrat uh, and you've got a defense industry, you want to be able to go back to them and say, look, I fought for you. Here's the cut from the Hill. Yeah, but what'd you do? You know, you really didn't do anything that way. So uh, if we're in an emergency and if Admiral Gilday and the Commandant are correct that this is a critical decade, um, we didn't gain anything this year. That's for sure. Admiral Gilday, holy cow. Yeah, it was an, not too impressive. If you listen, if you would have listened to the third segment, well, um, I don't know who the assistant uh, chief of naval operations for acquisitions is. That guy impressed me. Firm grasp of the numbers, firm grasp of why he, he thought the Navy should be pointing in this direction, firm grasp of why we didn't build the third Type 3 DDG or whatever the hell that, all that was about. You know, and he could link numbers to policy, blah, 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 blah. And that's where I, saw, that's where I thought that, that she's a uh, retired Navy captain. Her name's Luria, Naval Academy grad. Uh, to me, she impressed the shit she's out of me. pretty sharp. Yeah, I mean, she impressed the shit out of me. She went through footnoted history. When she went through this little soliloquy on divest to invest, she said, we never see the payoff for this. And we've heard it before. And she went down this thing. And I was like, whoa, who the hell is she? But anyway, Timmy, go ahead. What what stood well, out for that's, you? That's, that's a beautiful segue because I was going to focus on her and, and her line of questioning specifically on where did this requirement come from to redesign the Marine Corps to the way that we're redesigning it. And she seems to be being very polite to, to, to General General Smith as he sort of kind of basically tries to massage the answer. And the answer is it didn't come from anybody. It, we made it up because some guys thought it was a smart idea. And I think eventually that's going to come out uh, in the wash. The other point that really irks me is the contention. And again, she was there right oh, now as she, a deterrent. She she was all over him about oh, yeah. how did this become a requirement? Was this was right. this a was this a request from the COCOM, right? right. And then um, I should play that because he says, "Well, it, it, it was our guys inside of Indo-PACOM saying that this was what the discussions are about." And General Nellis had turned to on this, so it didn't really come through a formal channel, right? Right, and so, but. And so, and yeah, she. It's, it's bullshit. He was dancing. He was, he we was. know him. We know what he's doing. I've seen that shit. And before. she was looking for a footnoted paper, oh, yeah. a position and, paper and, that came out of Indopaycom saying, we're looking for a, a inside force that will stand in the weapons exclusion in, in weapons engagement yeah, weapons zone. Weapons exclusion zone. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The WEZ and be that force. And he. Yeah, and so yeah, and then she she very she very politely at the end of it said, "Well, maybe this requires a, a bit more discussion with your staff, and I'll take it up with." with them. Well, well and, and I and so I started. I went to her web page and started looking and try to get a little bit of a background on her. Typical Democrat, very inconsistent on Second Amendment issues and all this other current Black Lives Matter nonsense. But I did see a tape that she had because she she has a lot of uh, of her appearances grilling the Navy about the stinking carriers and the carrier maintenance programs. And it's an area which she has obvious, unbelievable expertise. And it's a, and she represents Norfolk and, and at that part of Virginia. So there is at least one congressperson with skin in the game who knows what the hell she's talking about. 
It's it, it is it was fun to watch him squirm, and I think she's going to have him squirming some more. To what end, I don't know, quite frankly. But uh, to contend that we now were what we once were, we're well, not be- because of, you know you used to be able to say, hey, give me a mech a mech heavy uh, a force here. I need uh, I need tanks and some mech heavy stuff. Wings, can you give me something? We'd wing something together. We at least had tanks. We don't we don't have that now. We've we've lost flexibility. In a responding to contingencies across the board, and and but nobody's being honest and saying that. Right. I mean, there's I, a reason why we had large infantry battalions. That's from World War II to sustain casualties and still be maintain operations. I mean, there's a lot of things that there are re- good reasons that we had them, and I don't know what the reasons are that we don't have them now, other than we don't have any more money. I thought it was. Did you, all right, let me did just you see uh, the let me question make, about the. Go ahead. Let me uh, just one point. The Navy shipbuilding program and the Navy, it, it seems like going through the early years of the 2000s and their their vacillations and then taking holes and then making in stride adjustments to the weapon systems and sometimes the propulsion systems and caused themselves, I think, incredible damage. And now – and so – you it, when you begin to get a sense of when, especially so when you heard Congressman Luria give you this little lesson in divest to invest, uh, I thought it very very interesting. And you see how problematic, right? The sh- Navy shipbuilding program has been, and now oh, yeah. you, now you double down on the maintenance, you know, problems, and we're still trying to, and. You know, we're still trying to act like we can project this naval force that we haven't invested in, and it doesn't look like we want to invest. You know, Gilday said at one point that the Navy needed between a real between like three point five and four point five percent real growth after inflation on an annual basis to get to where he thought they needed to go. And I think, um, I don't even think uh, uh, real growth is not going to match inflation this year, so they're going to take a a cut. And and uh, and so it's uh, I don't know when you look at this budget and and you and you say that we're going to you, the United States Navy and the United States Air Force will be the lead major organizations out there. Um, I don't know how you get there. I don't know how you get there. And if you're not serious about funding it, like what the hell? Well, yeah, I, I would say uh, two things. Item one, I don't know where the Navy is to. 10, 12 years ago, they had a huge issue in that they had to replace Ohio-class submarines, so that ate a big chunk of the budget, uh, and then just building a carrier. And before you know it, your shipbuilding budget was very, very constrained. And so they came up with this LCS, which, you know, inside the Navy is known LCS, little crappy ship. Uh, they really <laughs> never were able to do anything. Uh, the The second point that I, I took a note on. Did you see the question about the BHR investigation? No. Yes, I did. I mean, he came right out and said, when are we going to see it? Oh, we're trying to get it to you soon. That's and the done. guy said, well, you know, if it's true that one of your sailors burned it down, <laughs> that means if the rumor is true, that means that the rumor is true. Yeah. Uh, for, for him to say that in public, you mean? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. No, no congressman is going to put that out there. Well, I don't think any congressman on that committee, uh, and I think that was a chairman, uh, is going to put that out. No, it, it, it was Moulton. Okay, so yeah. I, I bet you that Moulton 
has seen the preliminary investigation. Right. If he puts, yeah, I'd, I'd uh, agree. Uh, but when, when was a BHR? I don't even remember. It was uh, um, what last summer? Two summers last ago. Summer. Yeah. yeah, I mean, was, it's been yeah, a year. Before the V thing. I mean, it's been a year. And then think about Pearl Harbor. Yeah. A year after Pearl Harbor, almost all those ships have been salvaged. Yeah. Right? And now we can't even figure out what happened to this one. There's They're going to say that the guy, who, the guy who started that fire in the BHR is the guy who shot uh, Ashley. Uh, Ashley. Uh, Pen it on her or him or whoever. I'll tell you, I I thought the uh, in the third segment that Gallagher, um, former Marine, uh, that Golden Golden, Jared Golden from Maine and and Luria. I I mean, if there's any if there's any reason to have hope that Congress might be it's you heard their line of questioning. And I, I was. I was I was impressed with that. I thought, well, maybe the House Armed Service Committee will, will be in good hands for a while because these veterans could. But again, it, very disturbing. The other thing that the commandant says is, you know, I've wrung everything I can wring out of the Marine Corps. And 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 then Will made a comment about this a couple of weeks ago when when that that soundbite hit um, live, and he said, "Look, everybody told him he would be here," and so. You know, he's he's divested and he didn't get a promise up front. And now he finds himself in the worst of all possible situations where he's asking for money because he's out. And his only other COA is to cut more muscle more. And now the only thing he's got to cut is people. So it was, that that's a, a, very stark when you when you listen to him and in those clips. Uh, another interesting question flipping through my notes is when they ask Gilday, you know, what are you doing that you don't need to do? <laughs> he came up with some security mission in Europe that's probably at most a couple of hundred people. I mean, come on. And if he's got to get back to him, that means he's never thought about the yeah. issue before. And those are hard things to look at. And I'll tell you, that the service that's the absolute worst at that is the Marine Corps. Right. We don't like to give up any mission. Why are we guarding embassies? You know. Yeah. We we, we didn't start that in 1775, um, and it's at one point it was the biggest battalion in the Marine Corps. I don't know if it is anymore. It's huge. Yeah, it's shocking. I, when I was on it. Yeah, it's it's uh, back then it was the biggest battalion in the Marine Corps. Now I don't think I think one of the headquarters battalions is bigger yeah. now. But it's still, it's 1,200 MCOs. The Soviet Union collapsed. All those countries got their own embassies and consulates. So but it's 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 north of 1,200 yeah. top 10% performers that are yeah. doing a that provides. I mean, it's not a service specific mission to say the least. It's not challenging for those guys. Yeah, and so there, there's other if 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 you can well. It is challenging to stay in the PRP program. There you go. That's the yeah. challenge, right? Yeah. As you would know, you know, as you would know, Jeffrey. Why is <laughs> why is the Marine Corps uh, Garden Navy nuclear weapons? Yeah, you know, I mean, the, it, it's not hard to come up with stuff. Do you want to hear the navy the naval officer explanation for that? Yeah, because we can't exactly. 
Exactly. That's their explanation. That's why there were armories in the first place. That's why. Yeah. Well, that's so funny. In the crew. Marines were there in the first place on ships to protect the officers from the crew. That's it. There yeah. You go. Yeah. <laughs> my, uncle, my uncle Vinny De Pasquale, my uncle Tommy De Pasquale were both on aircraft carriers when they were sailors in the early 60s and i they said both of them almost in unison we're there to keep the keep the, the marines there to keep the navy the sailors from throwing the officers off the ship well and and that's a genuine <laughs> historical mission from the birth of the navy yeah. you know in the british navy uh when when you know you were conscripting drunks on the waterfront uh who would mutiny at a, at a you know at given a half a second and so Officer birthing was separated from enlisted birthing, and the people in the middle of that was Marine birthing. But for years, <laughs> Marines had a lower pay, got paid less than the sailors. What? Because it took skill to be a sailor, you know, all the knots and ropes and in the days of sail. To, for the, the Marines, all, you're just a, a guy with a musket and a, you know, and a, and a club. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, again, though, if the secretary or if, if the chief of naval operations – can't come up with more than well, we got a couple hundred guys guarding dirt, as he said. Yeah. Then they have not taken a serious internal look at what the Navy should really. What is your must do? And you do all your must dos, and only with your fat do you do your can dos. Yeah. He has not prioritized that list. Or he would be able to come to that meeting. It's like say, self-evident, too, don't you think, yeah, Will? Here's, here's the it's 25 like things. Here's submarines the, and aircraft carriers. Yeah, here's the $42 billion. Here's the 35,000 sailors that we are doing can-do type of missions. at the, And we're suffering in our must-do missions. It, it's like if, you, if you've ever worked in an office, people that are always busy – um, they're working on a lot of low priority crap. Get people working on your number one priorities, and when they're done with that, send them home. Do your number one priorities. You'll be a successful organization. Listen to this. I'm interviewing, and Timmy, did you read this book called The Rifle? Uh, no, no, no. I listened to a podcast where he was describing it. I haven't read it. I'm going to interview the guy who wrote this book cool. in about 45 minutes. Um, and the the concept is the book comes out of this guy goes and talks to veterans and he brings World War II veterans and he brings with him an M1 Garand. Right. And he, and, and, he, and he chronicles the magical effect of them putting their hands on this weapon and the things their family said about about the, the interviews that, that got done um, in terms of I've never heard my father talk about any of this stuff that he talked about with you. Just uh, one is it right in the company of another veteran. And, uh, in, in this case, I think these guys, most of them were Marines and, uh, but with that weapon in their hands. So I'm gonna get a chance to interview him. So I thought you had, I he, thought you had mentioned it. I think Woody sound his rifle. You might want to ask him from Andrew, from Andrew, Biggio, forwarded forward by Melibana recipient Herschel Woody Williams. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, but Woody, he carried a, a flamethrower. 
Ah, but yeah. it's still, it's interesting. You've talked to him. There you go. You guys got a connection. I'm sure that. at one point he had a grand in his hands. They may have carried both probably. The- <laughs> yeah. Woody, he, Woody's, like a hey, Woody's a not a big guy he's either. A, he's, no. he's not a big guy. Anyway. All right. What are you reading, Jeff? Well, I'm reading, I'm, I'm in between this moving thing. I'm reading that book, Breaking the News, which kind of hit on some of the things we were talking about earlier. But a lot of stuff doesn't get reported <clears throat> just in, along that same vein in this book. He lays it out because huge corporations own um, the news organizations, like the same people who own NBC uh, own like Disney and so forth. And so and if they say anything that's uh, contrary to a business uh, effort in something in some other field, they'll get told, hey, don't do that again. Yeah. Kill that's that, amazing. Kill that's, that story. Like, uh, it's, it's every every network, to include Fox News, is subject to that. There's a point where somebody will say that you need that you need to not say that. In other words, uh, it doesn't matter how many people watch anymore, and that's the most disturbing thing. Because it used to be, if you had shitty ratings, your show would go away because it's, you know survival of the fittest. Oh no, not anymore. CNN will always be with us. And the reason is because they're owned by a much bigger corporation, and uh, and they like the shit that they say. Got it. All so right. that's a you know it's basically what it is is it's hard for us to exercise the First Amendment because the people who are supposed to alert us to possible malfeasance in our own government are compromised, are compromised. Right. And that's uh, what this book brings out, and it's disturbing. All right. Well, what are you reading? I'm reading a book by a guy named Daniel James Brown. It's called Facing the Mountain. It's a history of uh, Japanese Americans uh, during World War II. So it's about the internment camps, but it's also about the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which was started out as uh, the nice Nisei uh, kids. And it's uh, it's disturbing. Uh, it. I almost didn't read it after I read the first chapter because it really it's it's troublesome. Um, he sort of charts the path of what happened at the beginning of the war, and he tracks about six or eight different groups and characters, uh, Japanese Americans in Hawaii, uh, and then in the West Coast and and where they ended up, and uh, really, you know, some crazy stuff. Um, the 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 parents, many of whom were immigrants, first generation, were not allowed to become U.S. citizens, but all their kids were U.S. citizens. Uh, and these people were basically given no time and thrown into these camps. All their property was not confiscated, but they had to sell it at a fire sale. So people that had been in the U.S. for 40 years at that point basically had no rights. Uh, and then interesting as well, you know, the country looked at Japanese Americans as a monolith. But he tracks this 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which was basically comprised of two groups. One group was young men from Hawaii, and the other group was young men from the West Coast. And the guys from Hawaii uh, had not suffered the sort of systemic sort of racism. Um, They were restricted in what they could do in Hawaii, uh, but they had a very different culture. And their parents were not thrown into internment camps because the government figured out if we inter all the Japanese 
anyone of Japanese descent in Hawaii, the entire economy would shut down, uh, as opposed to the guys on the West Coast whose parents all were thrown into internment camps. And some of these guys were recruited out of internment camps. Yeah. Uh, and the 442nd is thought to be probably the most decorated unit of its size in World War II. They fought in Italy and Germany. Uh, yeah, they, they didn't them. liberate Dachau, but they were there immediately as Dachau was being liberated. Uh, and it just it's really fascinating. And what struck me is that uh, one guy is a resistor and he's very respectful. He doesn't try and hide it. Uh, and he's sure that when his case goes to the Supreme Court, he's going to win. And uh, he doesn't win. And it sort of shows that when the weight of the government wants to do something, the Constitution be damned. And it's sort of a, it, it's, uh, it's a warning uh, through the history of the United States uh, that uh, if you don't constantly exercise your rights, and if the country doesn't constantly laud people who exercise their rights, you end up in a very dark place. And uh, it, 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 it rhymes to me a little bit with things that are happening in modern America today, that people in disfavored groups, their rights mean a lot less than people in favored groups. And that's, that's not good. Um, this guy also wrote a book called The Boys in the Boat. It's about the 1936 oh, that's a great Olympic book. rowing team, and it's a great book. And if, if you've read that, I, I mean, I recommend everyone out there read this book. It's just really well done. And I would like to think, you know, I knew some things about U.S. history, but I knew nothing about this stuff other than we had internment camps. So really well done. Uh, Daniel James Brown, Facing the Mountain. Go ahead, Tim. Follow that. Oh, man. All I can say is Boys in the Boat is about as good a book as you're going to ever find. What a fascinating story that is. And I'm not reading anything nearly as interesting. I'm, I'm reading The Imagineers of War, the untold story of DARPA, the Pentagon agency that changed the world. And I got this book specifically because it covers uh, uh, the Taj and Jalalabad in the last chapter. And was a, I was able to fill in some details with my writing. But being that it's about DARPA, it's uh, it's it's interesting. I'm looking forward to getting at the beginning of it and reading it through. The, her coverage of of uh, my time in Jalalabad with Dave Warner was pretty comprehensive, and so it's a we'll see, we shall see. But it's a it's a, it's an interesting agency. They do a lot of weird stuff. As I said, I'm reading the body keeps the score. The subtitle is brain. Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma, written by a guy named Bessel van der Kolk, M.D. He's written a bunch of books, and I would tell you, I'm uh, absolutely enjoying it. I, you know, sometimes this stuff gets a little eggheadish. Uh, this is not. And uh, it's interesting, kind of the journey he goes on, uh, these great advances in me medications, and then with MRIs and all the different things that we can now see in the brain, right? This has become this this would become deductive science, right? We can now see it. So now we can. There's a chemical, and guess what? Doesn't work like that. Doesn't work <laughs> like that. And so it's it's very interesting. It's very interesting. All right, well, boys, I appreciate your flexibility today, and uh, Will's already on the move. 
you going to go uh, fleece somebody, Will? Um, where are you headed? Uh, last last week I was the fleecee, not the fleecer. So oh. Shift that around this week. We'll see. All right. All right. All right. Well, Jeff, good luck with the move. Will? Thanks. Hope your luck changes. And so Tim? We'll see you. All right. Okay, guys. That'll do it. The Mensa Brothers here on a uh, on a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio. So my uh, my thanks to them as always. And uh, interesting little segment right there. Um, yeah, interesting little segment. That'll do it on a Thursday. Started a few minutes late, but that's okay. If you're just tuning in, don't touch that dial. There's no open to the show. I got off a plane. Colleen picked me up. Came over here. Flipped everything on. Somebody unplugged my internet for some reason yesterday. I don't know why, but they did. And um, turned everything on and had an interesting conversation about mental health that I didn't think I didn't intend to have. But anyway, that's all right. Um, so did that. What else? I think that's it. Yeah, I'm going to record an interview that you'll hear on Monday uh, with a guy named Andrew Biggio. And uh, Andrew... Uh, has written a book called The Rifle, Combat Stories from America's Last World War II Veterans Told Through an M1 Grant, Andrew Biggio. Looking forward to it. Anyway, uh, have a great Thursday. I'm Mike McNamara, this is All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Glad to be back home. And uh, as always, if I can help you help somebody, um, don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. So, on that note, don't touch that dial. This program repeats itself momentarily. And uh, it's a good one. So, have a great Thursday. I'll see you tomorrow. I'm out. <laughs>